Good morning, boys. I love gathering with men like this. It is one of my favorite things to do. I love it first and foremost because your presence here is saying, I'm needy. I don't know how conscious you are of that, but you have carved out the time and put in the effort and the resources to be here. And your presence here is saying, I need other men in my life to become the man God wants me to be. I'm not okay just staying home and watching the Dodger game. I need other men. And so I see a display of humility in your presence here this weekend, that you carved out these days to do this. And I'm glad Ian's here. I see him in the back. We don't need any more students but Ian representing Biola because he's good enough to do it all by himself. <laughs> I'm serious. But, um, but I, I love being here. I come to you, as Jason was saying, as not just a professor, uh, but also a pastor at Grace Evangelical Free Church in La Mirada. And I come as a disciple of Jesus, as Jason said. That's my primary identity and calling in life is to be somebody who's depending on and following Christ with my whole heart. And I'm a husband of Donna for 32 years. I'm a father of four children and I love being with God's people and doing this. Let me show you a picture of my family. Oh, not what you were expecting. That's, that's just a bunch. It's kind of an old picture now. But this is just a bunch of people in our church who, this is our food bank team years ago. And I want to show you that picture before I showed you a picture of my family because this is my church family. And, and in many ways, our truest family is in the church. You know, for centuries, Christians have walked away from their earthly families when they became Christians because they were disowned, because they were rejected by their families. I've known a lot of Christians who have experienced that, especially in other cultures. And, and so the church is our truest family, and it's wonderful when our earthly family gets to be a part of that as well. But I want to show you this picture because I come not just as some speaker, but as not just a pastor at Grace, but as one of the members, one of the flock. And I want to just show you this glimpse of some of our people because this is my church family. I come with their blessing, under their authority, with their prayer and their encouragement. And I'm grateful to them. This is, this is my family at home. My wife, Donna, who we met in high school when we were 16. She is the most present and daily source of God's grace in my life. I have a wife that shows me the fruit of the Spirit on display in wonderful ways. I adore my wife. She's in Idaho right now speaking at a women's conference. And my oldest daughter, Caroline, is with my son at home. And uh, my son, Isaac, is up here with us. He, who knows where he is right now? Uh, he's off doing some, probably falling in a stream or something. My daughter, Paige, is in the middle there. She's 18 years old. And my kid, three of them are from Taiwan, one's from China. So we actually have a little geopolitical conflict in our very home there. <clears throat> I don't know if you know what's going on between China and Taiwan, but it's causing some friction in the Tanis family. My, we adopted my son Isaac, who's the life of the party everywhere he goes. And he'd only been here about six months, and he was doing push-ups one day in our living room. And I heard him saying, strong for China, strong for China. I'm thinking... <laughs> What's that about, Isaac? You, you need to be strong for Jesus. Uh, so, uh, so that's my family. And, and I am working out everything we're going to be talking about this week in the context of being a dad. And so what I want to talk about this week is being a Christian man. What does it mean to be a Christian man? 
You want to talk about a day of confusion on answering that question. I don't think there's actually ever been a time in all of human history when there's been more confusion about what it means to be a man or a woman in our society. Really, there has been sexual immorality and sexuality confusion for all of human history, but I don't think anything like we're seeing today. It's really tough to figure out what it means to be a man from God's perspective because there are so many different perspectives on what it means to be a man, and there are so many different perspectives from different ends of the spectrum. And so eventually you, you think it's going to end up being a choice between one of these two guys, right? On one hand... Is a real man Chuck Norris who just kills everybody in his wake, right? Or is a real man Harry Styles who just sports a, a gown like nobody's business, right? Um, yeah, Chuck, you're picking Chuck, yeah. Uh, so, so it's amazing how, how differently manhood is perceived. And we're actually at the point where the very category of man or woman is being thrown totally into question, right, and denied, and there's no such thing as gender binary, gender's just culturally related, and yeah, there may be some, some pesky biological aspects to it, but we'll take care of those with hormones and surgeries, and, and, and before you know it, there's, there's so much confusion. I have a friend who opened a door for a woman one time, and she spit in his face and said, I can open the door for myself, thank you very much. Sorry, ma'am, I had no idea that's what was coming. But yeah, it can be so confusing to know what it means to be a man in our society. So this morning, I want to think about one of the three things we're going to bear down on this weekend. There are a lot of things we could say about being a Christian man. What does it mean to be a man from God's perspective? But here are the three things I want to highlight for us this weekend. We'll do one each session. I want us to think in this time together of being a Christian man who finds his identity in Christ. That's, that's where it's all got to start. If we don't start there, we can't continue on to anything else. We've got to see ourselves from God's perspective. One, as those made in his image. And two, as those, if we are new creatures in Christ, who now find their identity in him. Second, tonight I want to think about what it means to find integrity in our character. So identity in Christ and then integrity in our character. That's, um, that's the second thing we want to think about. When we have our identity in Christ, that frees us to find our, our, our integrity in our character. We, we can now live according to God's ways because he has made us a new creature in Christ. And then third, when those things are in place, we then can boldly move into our relationships and take initiative and feel responsibility to be ministers in our relationships. But this morning, I want to think about what it means to have our identity firmly found in Christ. There are three things that I'm, I want to highlight in that regard, and, and I, I want you to realize that as we dive into this, we desperately need this. I, I don't care if you're a strong Christian who's been walking with the Lord a long time, or if you're really struggling and you're a Christian, or if you're here this morning and you think you're a Christian, but you're actually not, because the Bible has... Lots of examples of people who thought they were doing fine in their relationship with God only to find out that they weren't real. 
And maybe you're here this morning, and you aren't a Christian, and you know you're not. But you came with a friend who, who promised you, you maybe you get to go fishing and see a beautiful place, and, and you were willing to put up with all the Christian stuff. But I'm, I'm probably most glad you're here, if that describes you. But I want you to know, what we're talking about this morning applies to all of us and has vital importance for every one of us. Who you are before God is all you are. Every one of us starts hearing messages from our earliest days that define us. And we often will take those to heart. And I've heard it said that a little boy first learns to find out who he is on the ball field. And then eventually the bedroom. And then the boardroom. And we can. We can find our identity in things like athletic ability or sexual prowess with women, right? Uh, And then eventually our success in our business. And men can so define themselves by those things that, that we can miss the reality of who we actually are from God's perspective. As significant as athletic experiences or relationships or our business or our vocational calling can be, those things are peripheral and incidental to who we really are. All it takes is losing your job or a relationship or blowing out your hamstring when you think you're a great athlete and to, to put things in perspective. We need to ground who we are in things that last no matter what. And God gives us a foundation for that that we need to understand and appreciate. You don't just hear, it's not about being a barbarian, it's not about being a wimp, it's about being a godly man who finds who he is from God's perspective. And so, what does it mean to find our identity in Christ? Look look at this passage. It means no longer viewing ourselves or anyone according to the flesh. I love this passage that Paul gives us in 2 Corinthians. He says, we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance rather than the heart. In other words, superficial things, external realities. We we don't want you to be about appearances. We don't want you to be about superficial things in your understanding of who you are or who anyone is. You need to go through a shift. Look what he says. From now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. This Greek term, katasarka, according to the flesh. The NIV says, from a worldly point of view, just externals, just superficials. The kinds of things we typically talk about when we first meet someone. So what do you do? We introduce ourselves based on these things that we can start very frantically wanting to make sure people know about us so that they think of us in a positive way. But he says, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh. And then Paul says this. This is fascinating. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet we now know him no longer this way. So so think about the Apostle Paul saying that. If you know anything about his biography, the Apostle Paul not only wasn't a Christian, but he was a persecutor of Christians. He was vehemently opposing the way of Christ and Jesus' followers and killing them. He held the first martyr's clothes 
when he was being stoned to death at Stephen's martyrdom. He was part of murdering Christians. Imagine dealing with that the rest of your life once you become a Christian. And he did become a Christian. Because Jesus met him on the road to Damascus where he was going apparently to kill more Christians there. And Jesus met him, blinded him, knocked him down so he could give him sight and pick him up. And that's what he did. And he comes to Paul and he takes him out and completely turns his life upside down. And he goes from being in in opposition to Jesus to being the foremost advocate of proclaiming Christ, especially to the Gentiles eventually. He becomes the pioneer missionary to the Gentiles, of which we, uh, most of us, except for Richard, maybe, and maybe one or two others, Richard's Jewish background, but the rest of us owe our, our faith in Christ, if we have it, all the way back to Paul, and that's who he becomes. But imagine, he lost all his friends, he lost his job, he, he lost his social standing, he lost everything when he joined the ranks of Jesus. And his world changed. He went from seeing Jesus as a false Messiah to the true Messiah. He went from seeing Jesus' ways as lies to the truth that brings you to Jesus and to life and forgiveness. And so he had everything changed. And he said, look, there was a time I viewed Jesus just katasarka, just according to the flesh, just from a worldly point of view. And when I saw him from God's perspective and not just the flesh perspective, I started to view everyone that way, no longer according to superficial appearances, but by the heart, but by who someone really is. I've had a transformation in the way I view Jesus, and so I've had a transformation in the way I view everyone, including ourselves. And we've got to go through this transformation. We've got to get completely different lenses through which we see the world. We've got to be men who view the world, view people, starting with ourselves, starting with Christ and then ourselves, and now we see from God's vantage point. That's what this whole time is about, is is changing our perspective, changing our lens. You know, every once in a while, you may catch the light hitting this eye and see a little, I have a, a, a fake lens in this eye. I had a torn retina and then... I had a problem and I needed a new lens. And it's just astounding. They, they grind the old one into powder, suck it out with a little vacuum, and then they make a special lens, put a little incision in there, fold the lens, put it in, and it pops open. And I have a lens that's going to go to the grave with me now. It's awesome. Aren't you glad to be alive today instead of blind in one eye? I mean, I'd be dead actually now if it weren't for medical science. But, but I had a whole new lens. I went into that surgery with a cloudy vision in this eye, and I came out with, uh, with, with the ability to see better than this eye. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing. But see, that's what we're after. We want God to give us a far more important lens through which we see the world than even the importance of this new lens in my physical eye. That's what we're after. We want to see things differently. And it takes work because we're bombarded with all kinds of lies and false messages about who Jesus is and who we are and who everybody else is and where our value comes from. And we've got to have a transformation in our vision of all of these things. No longer viewing anyone just according to the flesh. He says, look, look, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. 
Something entirely new. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Why does that happen? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So this idea of a transfer of perspective, of vision on Jesus and then ourselves and everybody else we meet is what we're after here. We've got to see ourselves and everything differently. And what happens is when you turn from sin and self to Jesus in your place, everything changes. And, and we could talk for years about what changes. But there are three things I want to make sure we leave here this morning realizing. We have, we are, if we have trusted Jesus for forgiveness. Three essential things every Christian man needs to know about himself. The first one is that if you're in Christ, if you, you have union with him, you've trusted him, you are forgiven. The second thing is if you've trusted Jesus, you're not just forgiven, you're righteous in God's sight. And we'll talk about that. And the third thing is you are adopted as his son, your family, you're his child. And we'll talk about that. Those are the three big things. So, so the first thing is you're forgiven. Embracing the forgiveness that is yours in Christ by faith is where it all needs to start. Because every one of us comes to God with nothing to offer him but our sin. This is a, a, a pride-killing realization that at times we, even in the church, can work so hard to avoid. I don't think there's anything actually easier to prove that Christians believe than that we've got a serious sin problem. I mean, just watch the news for one minute and tell me we don't have a sin problem in the world. Take an honest look into your own heart and tell me you don't have a sin problem. It's amazing, though, how, how we can be so self-deceived. Norm MacDonald, a brilliant comedian who just died, uh, in the last couple years of his life, he was dying for nine years, and didn't tell almost anyone. And most of his friends were shocked when they found out he died just a couple of weeks ago. But in the last couple of years of his life especially, he became very interested in Jesus and the Christian view of things. And he talked about his, his liberal Christian minister that he would go to offering him nothing because he wasn't going to the Bible. And Norm MacDonald would go talk to a rabbi, and, 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 he, and I, I heard him describe the human condition one time. He said, one of the reasons I call myself a Christian is because of the way it describes humans. He said, some people think, oh, humans are just good and divine, and he said, that's obviously not true. And he said, some people talk about humans like they're nothing but bad, and I don't think that's true either. And he said, but the Christian view of things is that there's something wonderful in everyone, and there's something really bad in everyone. And then he said this, and then Christianity has this one guy going right down the middle of all of that, solving the problems. It's amazing that, that Norm MacDonald is talking this way as he's thinking about his own death. But that Christian view of human nature is so true and accurate. It's one of the most compelling things to me about the biblical worldview. It explains human nature, my heart and your heart, perfectly. We just commemorated September 11th and, and on that day you see unspeakable human evil and incredible human goodness running up those stairs instead of down those stairs in the trade, in the trade center 
How do you explain that? Well, the Christian view of humanity explains it beautifully. The image of God and sin. Both of those things coexisting in, in all of us. But the sin part is something we want to avoid and ignore and blame and rationalize and excuse and minimize. And man, you hear all these ways of so-called apologizing when a politician or an athlete gets caught cheating. You know, I'm sorry that mistakes were made. What is that? Come on. Youthful indiscretion. Yeah, just no, I sinned. When do you hear that anymore, right? I lied. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Now that's an apology, right? But, but we've got lawyers telling us how to apologize now instead of God. And so we need to come to God realizing that, as the Bible says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us has gone his own way. But God laid upon Jesus the iniquity of us all. He pays the penalty. You can actually lean right into the reality of your own sin when you know there's a solution to it. If not, I guess your only option is self-denial, self-deception, excuse, blame. you got to do something with it. And we are sinners, but you need to know that Jesus on a cross and in his life took your place if you trust him in faith. He took your place. When he's on that cross, he's paying the penalty a holy God demands for sin perfectly. And when you trust Jesus, you are forgiven. Not mostly forgiven. Not pretty much forgiven. You're forgiven. The Bible uses this threefold way of talking about sin as transgression, uh, iniquity, transgression, and sin. And over and over again, that's, that's iniquity is like pollution, and transgression is breaking God's law, and sin is missing the mark of God's holiness. And the Bible over and over again says, yeah, he forgives all of it. He forgives all of it. And we need to claim the forgiveness we have in Christ. He really took our place in that way. We're forgiven. Uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful. Not if we can excuse our sin or rationalize our sin or blame our sin. You know, if I just had better parents. All these excuses we can have. No, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As far as the east is from the west, so is your sin cast from you. Like the, the depths of the sea, walk in that freedom of forgiveness that you have. You really are forgiven in Christ. Grab that. I think Satan wins if you believe you're 98% forgiven. I think he wins. If he can just convince you that Jesus paid for 98% of your sins, even 99, but you just got that 1% you better work off. Come on, you're a self-respecting, hardworking American man. You don't take a handout, do you? You do from God. It's called grace. And there's something in us, as bizarre as this is, that hates grace. We want to deserve it. We want to earn it. We, we want to have some, some worthiness that we can point to that, that is the origin of this. No, the origin of the grace of God comes from the character of God. Not from the object of the one loved. And that's so freeing. It's wonderfully liberating to know you're really forgiven. You ever see that bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven? Uh, it's true, but I, I, sometimes I think, wow, I'm not just forgiven. It's actually way more than that. Way more than that. 
I'm, yes, I'm forgiven. But this gets us to our second point. We're forgiven, but we're also righteous in his sight. You are righteous. Did you see what it said in the Second Corinthians passage we saw? That what it means to view ourselves and others in Christ no longer according to the flesh is realize that he took our place. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So being a Christian isn't just having a blank slate. It's that, but then it's having all the perfect obedience and righteousness added to your plate, added to your slate. It's not just a clean slate. It's one that's loaded up with the perfect righteousness of Jesus. So I actually want to get a bumper sticker someday that says Christians aren't perfect. Uh, Christians aren't just forgiven. They're righteous and holy and blameless and adopted and chosen from the foundation of the world. And in, yeah, that'd be a big bumper sticker, I know. Maybe I need to get a van and just put it all the way. But there's so much incredible reality that is ours, starting with forgiveness, but then getting to righteousness. Many of us know Jesus died for our sins, but do you know he lived for you as well? He died for you, yes, but he lived for you. He lived a perfectly obedient life in your place. So every time you broke God's law, Jesus kept it. Every time you lied, he told the truth. Every time you lusted, he took every thought captive and walked in purity. We can be completely taken over by the guilt and shame of our sin. But Jesus is telling you today, he has not just forgiveness to offer you, but the righteousness of Christ himself. That's what we're able to have in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ. And what else is that we're his children. You know, J.I. Packer says, it is a great thing to be forgiven by God and an even greater thing still to be made righteous by him, but an even greater thing yet still to be adopted by him. You know, it's one thing to have the judge say not guilty. And it's another thing to have the judge say you're righteous and you've kept the law perfectly. But how about that judge saying, and you're my son, you're my child, and you have the full rights as sons. I love you as much as I possibly can because I love you in the son. See, we've got to take it to that ultimate intimacy. We're invited into a relationship with God that is in Jesus, which means it's as intimate as it can be from God's perspective. We're now his children. He loves us perfectly. Where his sons, look at Romans, uh, Romans 8. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's a, a scream. The, the, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. We're forgiven and we're righteous and we're his children forever. We've got to grab a hold of this royal inheritance that includes complete forgiveness of sins and righteousness in God's sight. We've got to work to get better at understanding that Jesus did the work. And we can rest in his finished work on our behalf. And see, that's when he's glorified in our lives, when we depend on him and take our greatest joy and pleasure in him. You know, I grew up uh, as a kid with Muhammad Ali in his heyday, man. I am the greatest. I mean, you look at Muhammad Ali and, and you think, man, I can't imagine a guy who was more confident in himself than a guy who calls himself the greatest. 
You know, when he died, listen to what his wife said about him. He worried every day about his salvation. He would wake up every day and think about his own salvation and would wake up every day and say, I just want to get to heaven. And I have a lot of good deeds still to do to get there. That is tragic. His commitment to Islam is not going to lead him to the grace he desperately needed in Jesus. To wake up every day thinking, I've got more good things to do. A man who appeared more self-confident than maybe anybody in American history, deep down was deeply insecure in his relationship with his creator. We don't have to live that way. We have everything we knew that we need. You know, William Randolph Hearst, for a long time, was the wealthiest man in the world. And he, com- he, he, he heard about a piece of art, and he sent one of his assistants around the world to find this art. No one was sure where it was, but it was a statue from, from the Roman times that he wanted. And he sent this representative all over the world. He traveled trying to find it. He went to Rome first. He was following all these leads. He looked all over the world for this piece of art. And he finally discovered where it was. And he went back to William Randolph Hearst and he said, Sir, it's already in your collection. <laughs> nice to have that much art, right? Uh, But yeah, he said, you already own it. And I think of that illustration so often because if you're a Christian, you have everything you could ever need or want from God in Christ. And still, we can go around looking for what we already have in Christ. It's ours. We've got everything we need. We don't need to add anything to what Jesus has done. We don't need to earn anything before God. We're forgiven and we're righteous, and we're his children. You are a child of God. Jesus has done it. Everything you need for him to do, he has done. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2? I want to just look at these few verses. And if, if you're a child of God, if you've trusted Christ, just let these wash over you, these words, these descriptions of who you are. And if you're not someone who's trusting Jesus, I want you to hear what you're missing. Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1. And you were dead. Pay attention to that word. It doesn't say you needed more time, or you needed better parents, or better education, or you needed just a leg up, or more finances. It it doesn't say you needed just some more morality. No, you were dead. You weren't anesthetized, you weren't tied up, you weren't knocked out, you were dead. And dead men can't save themselves. You were dead in the trespasses, the law-breaking, and the sins, missing the mark of God's perfection, in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's as bad as it can get. That is not pulling any punches on how bad our sin problem really is. But thank God for the next verse. Verse 4. But God, yes, I have a sweatshirt that says, but God on it. That's it, but God, 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast for we're his his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Did you hear that description of what it means to be a Christian? What it means to be a man in Christ? It couldn't be better than it is. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, lacking nothing you need, yet we can walk around groping and grabbing and, and clamoring for the things we think we desperately need instead of resting in God for us in Christ. And we've got to find who we are in him and not things according to the flesh. And this is easier said than done. I so realize it takes a miracle in every one of our hearts to rip us out of a self-absorbed approach to life. And according to the flesh approach to life. I get this. I remember I was a a first-year PhD student uh, getting a PhD in theology. And you need to know... um, I've had to work so hard every level in, in my studies. I mean, God just wanted me to do it in spite of me. And, and it's hard work, and I've always felt over my head. I was admitted into college on academic probation. My first day as a freshman, I was already on probation. Welcome to college. You're on probation. That's how bad my high school record was. And, and so every step of the way, I felt over my head, can I do this? And now here I am starting a Ph.D. And the first course I took was theological German. And I had to learn 30 new theological German vocabulary words every day of the summer. And I, I was over my head, and, and I was feeling very insecure. And I'm, I'm sitting there in the back of the room, mid-20s. I'm sitting there in the back of the room, and there were students. And I said, oh, he went to Harvard. He went to Yale. I went to Central Connecticut, which you need like a pulse to get into. <laughs> and, and I barely got in. My football coach got me in, or I never would have even gotten in there. And, and these guys are asking questions. Not only do I not know the answers to their questions, I don't even understand their questions. And I'm sitting back there feeling very insecure. And do you know what I found myself doing sitting in the back of this classroom? This guy would ask this question. And do you know what I would think? I would have thoughts like, that guy couldn't make a layup if his life depended on it. I was having, and another guy would ask a question, and I'd say, that guy's never been able to bench half his weight. I'm playing the athlete card, which was already fading at that time, in this class. Well, that afternoon, I went out and played basketball with the Trinity basketball team at the time, these varsity players. And I was still a decent athlete, but these guys were another level. And I'm trying to guard their point guard. He made this move, and I looked like I was Gumby, just (laughs) rubber. He made this move, and I was like, it's a good thing I didn't lose all my joints. And he blew by me with this little finger roll. Do you know what I thought in that moment? I wonder when the last time he read a book was. <laughs> and I remember, I, right, I was right there on the court, and I had that thought, which is the kind of thought you have, what, like in fifth grade? Right? And here I am, a Ph.D. student in theology, thinking like 
a fifth grader. I'm thinking, what is your deal, Eric? What do you have to prove? You know, I graduated from that program, and I'm teaching at Biola. I think I was teaching there three years at Biola, and I'm teaching on the very thing we're talking about this morning. And I'm out for a run in my neighborhood. I got to know my neighbors really quickly, and one of my neighbors drives by in the neighborhood as I'm out for a run, and he waves, and I wave, and we gotten to know them, and we hung out with them, and, and, and I realized after he drove out of sight that when I saw my neighbor, I started running faster than I had been running. And then when he drove out of sight, I sort of went back down to my plodding pace before then. Now, you're all laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? And I had this thought, what was that all about? You know, why, why was my instinctive response to, I, I guess, impress my neighbor with my fitness level like he cares? If you knew this guy, he does not care about fitness level, right? At all, in himself or anyone, right? So, what an idiot, right? But even if he did, even if he did, what are you doing? In some ways, we never stop being fifth grade boys. But the way we grow as godly men is to grow in who we are in Christ and grab a hold of everything he's done on our behalf. And that means prying your fingers off your own self-righteousness, your own self-worth, your own accomplishments as the source of your identity. Listen to Martin Luther. A man with confidence can boast in Christ and say, mine are Christ's living, doing, and speaking. His suffering and dying, mine as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. Just as a bridegroom possesses all that is his bride's and she all that is his, for the two have all things in common. So Christ and the church are one flesh and one spirit. And so we need to get not self-esteem but Christ-esteem that gives us an understanding of ourselves that rests in his finished work. The greatest lie of Satan, I think he tells, is he tells unbelievers you're fine just the way you are, and he tells believers you're not fine just the way you are in Christ. You're not enough. You need to prove something. And he's called the accuser of the brethren, right? He'll bring up something from junior year of high school in a 50-year-old man's mind and heap shame on him. Listen to Spurgeon. I know what the devil will say to you. He, he will say you're a sinner. Tell him you know you are. Tell him you know you are. But for all that, you're justified. He will tell you of the greatness of your sin. Tell him of the greatness of Christ's righteousness. He will tell you of all your mishaps, your backslidings, your offenses, and your wanderings. Tell him and tell your own conscience that you know all that and that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And although your sin be great, he is quite able to put all that away. Guys. Yes. That deserves. Yes. Imagine if we could really get a hold of this. Imagine the kind of men and husbands and fathers and friends and churchmen and neighbors we would be. And we'll get to that, but we've got to grab a hold of our inheritance in Christ. You know, we have four children. We adopted uh, all, all four older 
They were older when we adopted them. They were quite aware when we adopted each of them that they were orphans. They had been orphans. And in some ways, I have felt through the years, my whole job as a dad is to get my kids to believe that they're not orphans anymore. It's hard to believe that when you started off the first eight, seven, five, and six years of your life as an orphan. And, and I, I do, I feel like my whole job sometimes with my kids is to get them to believe that they belong to the Thomas family. And they're secure and they're safe and they don't need to prove anything or earn anything to be in our family. Wouldn't it be awful if my kids stole something which they've done or lied which they've done or, or, or done something, uh, you know, sinful? And I said to them, you better stop that if you want to be part of this family. No, what do you say? You're part of this family. So you're free to stop that. You don't, need, you don't need to fend for yourself. You don't need to steal. You don't need to eat like it may be your last meal. I'll never forget um, the first time we went to church with my daughter. She was eight. We adopted her she, she, from an orphanage in Taiwan. And we adopted Caroline. And, and we told her what we were doing. We were going to church for two hours and we were coming back home. And she walked out of the church, out of our house that day on the way to church with everything she could possibly carry. Stuffed animals, food, a change of clothes, toiletries, everything. We said, honey, she didn't speak English, but she, she understood what we were saying. We said, honey, we're coming back in two hours. You don't need any of that. And she gave us a look that said, I'm not taking any chances. And we came back, and the next week, she came out with all that stuff again. The, the third week, she came out with a little less. It took about four months before she just skipped out of the house with just her Bible. And I think of that scene of Caroline coming out of the house loaded down with everything she could carry when she didn't need any of it. And I think I can live that way. We as God's people can live that way. We can live feeling like we got to carry everything we possibly can to prove ourselves, to earn what we need from God. And we don't. We can let it go. We can let the sin go. We can let the, the need to prove ourselves go. We don't have to brag and make things a little bit better. I don't even tell football stories anymore because I'm not sure how many touchdowns I actually had because for so many years I said it was more than it actually was. <laughs> I don't even know. Because, because we can live our lives with something to prove. Guys, imagine what our fellowship would be like as brothers, what our churches would be like, what our families would be like if we realized Jesus did it all. Jesus did it all. He took away the sin, the shame. He, he took away the separation between us and God. He took away all the things that we think we need to carry around all the time to fend for ourselves because Jesus did it for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus did it for us. Thank you that we have nothing left to do to add to our righteousness, to our forgiveness, to our adoption. Thank you that you did it because you are a God who's gracious and loving and compassionate and just and wrathful. And you satisfied that wrath on the cross and obeyed 
in our place through the life of Jesus and adopted us into your family and you love us as much as you can. Lord, I pray that each of us this morning would walk out of here with a more profound sense of your love for us than we've ever had before. And we would walk in the freedom and the newness of life that that brings. And we pray this in the name of the one who did it all for us. Amen.